So I've got this uh, friend of mine. Uh, I've known him, I guess, about at least 30 years now. I met him in my first parish in West Hempstead. And uh, he's a teacher. He's uh, a little older than me. I think he's probably been teaching about 40 years. Um, and he's kind of taught almost a little bit of everything over the years. Uh, most subjects, most grades, grade school, high school. He's uh, coached a lot uh, over those years. We meet up maybe at least once a year, maybe sometimes twice for lunch or dinner. And I love, uh, I really like him. I really love talking to him. Um, he's smart. He's just got a lot of wisdom and I like to, I just kind of like to pick his brain about things. He's a great, I think, like observer of people. Um, he's got a couple of degrees, but it's more like his um, in the trenches knowledge. You know, 40 years of being around kids and their parents. Um, he's got a lot of wisdom. At any rate, uh, some of that was in, came into play not too long ago. I uh, got lunch with him. And uh, he was telling me that uh, he had just finished a couple of nights of uh, parent-teacher meetings. And he was telling me how, he's teaching, he's in middle school now, and he was saying how in, in middle school the kids meet with the parents and the teachers. They're part of the meeting. I think the thought is the kid is now old enough to really be part of the conversation. Especially if it's kind of a, a difficult conversation, something's not kids' grades aren't what they ought to be, or maybe behavioral concerns. So he was talking a little bit about that, and he said how um, it's very interesting when the kid is in the room, he said you can almost tell when the kid's in the room, and it's kind of not good news. Again, it's about grades or behavior. He said you can tell almost right away who's in charge at home. Are the parents calling the shots? Or is the kid kind of running things? He said, uh, all you gotta do is look at the kid's reaction. When the teacher is communicating bad news, look at how the kid reacts. Uh, he said, uh, if the kid looks scared, that's a good thing. Um, because almost always the issues will be resolved because the parent is looking at the kid isn't happy the kid is f scared and things are resolved he also said uh, if the kid appears unfazed kind of indifferent to, the, to what's going on and to the bad news you know who's in charge uh, the kid's not really scared. His point is that if there's a healthy fear of consequence, healthy fear of consequence, the grades improve. The bad behavior stops because there are consequences. But the kid lives in a house where there really sort of aren't any. Mom and dad kind of shoot blanks. It's all false threats. They never follow through 
And then the trouble's gonna continue. And it's gonna get worse because the stakes get higher in high school. Anyway, he just was uh, kind of just making that observation to me. I was sort of intrigued by that. And, he, and then he said, uh, what he'll do sometimes when he sees this dynamic where like mom and dad look like they're afraid of Junior, um, sometimes he'll ask the kid to step outside. He said, especially if it's parents who are uh, young, I mean, if this is their first kid, he'll ask the kid to step outside and then he'll just talk to them a little bit. Kind of, he gives them sort of unsolicited parenting advice. He's got grown kids of his own. He's been married for, for years. And he just, what I love about this guy is he just doesn't care. <laughs> like he just doesn't really care what, in a good way, what parents think. He's pretty sure he's right about this stuff. And he's like, I'm gonna tell them. I can't make them listen, but they're gonna hear it. Um, and he doesn't, I, I'm sure he doesn't do it in a, you know, uh, an insulting way. Um, but he basically says, it's kind of simple. He says, if you, if you don't follow through with your threats, the kid's gonna run circles around you. If you blink, you're gonna lose. They need to be appropriately afraid of you. And you have to be willing to embrace the pain of parenting. I thought there was something kind of profound about that. And I mean, I don't even have kids, but from a distance. He says, when you hold them accountable, you know, it's not gonna be pleasant, right? They're gonna be upset. It's gonna be uncomfortable. You're not gonna be mom or dad of the year. But man, if you, if you hold them to it, you win. And they'll win, but it's kinda painful. It's not easy. It's like, the news can't always be good. We want it to be. I want to go in with my teacher and my kid and have my teacher say only great things. And hey, sometimes that happens. But usually not. And take it beyond a parent-teacher meeting, just all of life. Like, it can't always be good. It's never all good, right? So when we like deny that, and when we run from that, it doesn't end well. I mean, look at this gospel. Look at Mary and Joseph's reaction, this holy family. Like, they're a model for parents. They bring their newborn son to the temple according to the law. This guy Simeon is there. We're told he was a righteous and devout, really holy guy. He sees this baby and he basically says, now I can die a happy man. I've seen the one I've been waiting for, the Messiah. He'll be a light for all peoples. Well, I mean, in that moment, if you were Mary and Joseph, how could you not be a little proud? How could you not find that 
kind of flattering. But in the next moment, almost in the same sentence, then you get them hearing this. This light for all peoples, he's also gonna be a real sign of contradiction. And your hearts will be pierced by his life and what people will do to him. Imagine hearing that. So, this story, this presentation, is it a happy story or a sad story? Is it light or dark? Is it good or bad? It's both, right? It's both. It's both hopeful and heartbreaking at the same time. It's flattering and scary at the same time. Mary doesn't cover her ears when she starts to hear the the scary stuff. Joseph doesn't tell Simeon to get out of the room when he starts talking about contradiction and suffering. Like they take it. I'm sure they weren't happy about it, but they took it. They didn't run from the dark and the sad and the scary, and neither should we. I think that was really what my my teacher friend's point kind of was, his advice to these parents. Like, yeah, it's not all good. He's not the perfect student. And he needs to keep his mouth quiet. He needs to start raising his hand more often. He needs whatever it is. He's kind of lazy. He's got he's to like buckle down like, okay, like, mom, dad, <clears throat> you got to hear that. I'm not saying you should like jump for joy at the prospect of hearing it. But if we run from it, it's just gonna get darker. You know, uh, when we do baptisms, uh, priests and deacons, when we celebrate a baptism, in the ritual, right in the beginning, there's a couple of, uh, couple of questions that the priest, the deacon will ask to the parents. So what's the baby's name? What are you asking for? Baptism. A couple of questions to the parents and to the godparents about their roles in the life of this kid. And then the priest or the deacon makes the sign of the cross on the baby's forehead with his thumb. Almost like, you know, uh, Ash Wednesday. There's no ashes, and it's just on on the baby's forehead. And then the, the deacon, the priest will say to the parents, you do the same. And then to the godparents, you follow them. Why? Why do we do that? Why is that in the ritual? What, what, what do you think we're saying when we do this cross thing on the baby's forehead? Oh, maybe it's like, I don't know, we're in church, sacraments happening, we're a bunch of Christians. I don't know, maybe it's just like a little gesture. Could be just that. 
no more than that. Maybe it's this, and I suspect it's more this than that. I think the, uh, the, the, the cross on the forehead says this. This little baby that you're holding, this little baby that you love beyond description, the cross is always gonna be with him or her. Because crosses are forever. Wherever they go, there will be crosses. Now we don't celebrate that. We don't look for that or hope for that. We hope they're not gigantic crosses. We hope they're not constant crosses. But the church is realistic enough to say, but they're gonna be there for this little baby. So don't deny it. Don't cover for it. Don't, don't jump in front of the crosses to protect your kids. But remember this, Easter Sunday follows Good Friday. Good Friday crosses are met with Easter Sunday resurrection. Like in other words, it will get better. We will get through this. Don't deny that it stinks, whatever it is. But just know that we've got this. We will be okay. Hey, maybe, that's the, maybe there's the difference between people of faith and people who haven't really got it. We go, yeah, like life is tough at times, sometimes crazy tough. We call them crosses. But we know Easter Sunday is there. We know there's always hope. I don't know, I'm not sure about people without faith. They don't call them crosses, they just call it, you know, bad times, misfortune. Who cares what you call it? But I'm not sure what happens to a person without faith who's like thinks, I, this may never get better. It does get better. Easter Sunday happens. And maybe that's why we put the little sign on the little baby's head to think that she'll never know what a cross is like, do you think to think that he'll never know the pain of a cross is silly. It's d delusional. So be real about it, like Joseph and Mary were, but also have hope, like Joseph and Mary did. You know, I was listening to this, this was last week, it was last Sunday actually, I was pulling up here for Mass, and on the radio there was this interview with this couple, this couple that were uh, pregnant with their first child. And I, I came in midway through the story, but I, I got most of it. They were expecting a baby, and um, within a couple of weeks, I guess, complications arose. And the prenatal testing started to re uh, show like terrible stuff, like this baby was going to be severely disabled. And the dad was explaining the nature of it. I didn't even fully get it all, but it was bad, like really bad and kind of hopeless. 
And the doctor said, you know, if, if this baby makes it full term, and that was a big if, he's got no chance. It was a boy, they knew it was a boy. Like he'd probably last a day or two or three at the most. So they were, you know, devastated and horrified and heartbroken. And then the father in this interview was saying how the, uh, the doctors started to recommend that they just terminate the pregnancy. That was the phrase they kept using. And he said it happened, it was mentioned maybe three times by three different people in the course of like the, the day when they were informed of all this. And he said on the third time it was brought up, he said, uh, we are not going to terminate this pregnancy. So don't mention that again. That's not an option. We're not gonna allow you to take the life of our little boy. So don't mention that again. We will love him as long as we have him. And along the way, we'll be praying for a miracle. Well, he was born, and there was no miracle. He died. He lasted longer than a couple of days. It was a few weeks. But to hear this mother and father then talk about those few weeks was like chilling and inspiring. The father just described the, the worst and the best days of their lives. He mentioned, uh, what is it, A Tale of Two Cities, the beginning of uh, the Dickens novel. These were the, they were the best of times and the worst of times. He said it was, it was, it was that. He described, they described the heartbreak and the sadness of what they knew was coming. They also described this like outrageously adorable, cute little boy. They kept talking about the gift, this gift that they'd been given. And at one point the mother talked about the prospect of seeing him again in heaven. And how that's made the prospect of dying less scary. She was like, I'm not looking to die now and we hope we're gonna have more kids, but we're gonna see him again. They had, they had named him. And then he said this, the father, and this is when I <laughs> grabbed for a pen and I scribbled down what he wrote, he said, from this chapter of their lives. He said, uh, we've learned that joy and sorrow can coexist. And I, I was like, oh my gosh. Like I, I wrote it down. Joy and sorrow can live together.
We don't want sorrow. We don't look for it. But the reality is they do exist, don't they? I mean, think of your life. Think of chapters in our lives that were objectively dark and we wouldn't want to revisit them ever and you wouldn't really wish them on your worst enemy. In the midst of the darkness of those chapters, wasn't there like some joy and love? Like didn't joy and sorrow live together in that rotten chapter? They do exist. Mary and Joseph knew they existed. My teacher friend was trying to just say to these parents, it's okay, like, you're not a terrible parent when the news is bad. But we gotta deal with the bad news. Or it's gonna get worse. And I don't even think you'd, you'd level that sorrow, but how about just light and dark? They coexist. We want much more light than dark. We don't go looking for sorrow or darkness, but we know it's inevitable. And when it was presented to Mary and Joseph, like in a sentence, they heard it. They didn't run from it. So from the first holy family to that holy family on the radio who lost their little boy, to us and to ours, to our holy families, there's maybe not a bad resolution at the start of a new year. Let joy and sorrow coexist. With the knowledge that Easter Sunday comes. <laughs>